This is the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, and we're speaking with Danny Haifong, who is the co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence. We'll be talking about this concept of American exceptionalism and how it is used by the U.S. empire, as well as American citizens, as a way to justify you know, some wrong actions carried out by the U.S. government. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Danny. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we discuss Danny's book, uh, I would like to make a disclaimer that uh, although our guest is, I'm not sure how you, you can tell us how you might uh, identify as, you know, leftist, progressive or socialist. Uh, I, I am not. But what brings us together is that we both think there is a problem with American exceptionalism. And I hope once again that this is an example of how people from different uh, views or I- ideologies can hold a respectable and constructive dialogue in trying to identify and help solve problems that plague our nation uh, and the world. And so before we get into exceptionalism, Danny, could you care to comment on the importance of people from different sides being able to discuss uh, issues and your experience in talking with people uh, from different perspectives? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I consider myself, I've been writing for Black Agenda Report for about five years or so. And uh, the book was really based upon a lot of the writing and work that we've done and the inspiration I've garnered from it. And, you know, we're a, a, a journal of the black left. And so, you know, I'm Vietnamese myself and I've taken a lot of cues from the black liberation movement, which has been uh, mostly a socialist movement. However, when it comes to this day and age, and I consider myself a socialist, but when it comes to this day and age that we're in, under the conditions that we're in, in the United States especially, we need to be able to have conversations uh, with people who may uh, think differently from us. Of course, this doesn't mean that we find it okay when certain right-wing or uh, reactionary politics emerge in our movements and our struggles. But what it means is that we can appeal to broad sections of struggling people in the United States around questions that are so urgent, especially when it comes to this question of empire, which, uh, you know, has the potential with the way that the United States behaves around the world into creating a catastrophe of nuclear proportions with big powers like Russia and China, which has to be really investigated. And I think uh, being able to talk about American exceptionalism like we do in our book really helps us to do that and really helps us to engage in these conversations in a way that uh, even if you do not agree with the way I think about things in terms of my analysis, that you will understand that some of these questions uh, require more than even just ideological precision and ideological agreement, but rather an understanding that we need to come together and ensure that the U.S. empire doesn't kill us all. Now, exceptionalism for me, I, I don't think it's talked about too much, but, you know, m- myself as an American, uh, uh, it's something that affects not just Americans, but the whole world. And it's it's a fascinating thing. For me, it's it's curious, it's enigmatic. And, you know, for, from my, my view, I, I see it certain ways. And I think it's valuable to read um, books such as yours, where, you know, you're, you're coming from a different perspective, but maybe you talk about things that I, I, I don't see that I miss. Um, I think exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, is criticized by people from the left, perhaps to a lesser extent from the right, but also other groups such as libertarians. And the U.S. government clearly uses this idea of exceptionalism to provide cover for itself as it launches what I think are clearly unethical wars and economic policies abroad. Uh, In your book, I think you say the exceptionalism is weaponized. Uh, You mentioned Russia. 
I know a few years ago, the Russian president Putin famously wrote a New York Times op-ed complaining about American exceptionalism. But you know what goes go, and going a little bit further, what amazes me even more is not from the just from the government level, but the exceptionalism you encounter at the individual level of the U.S. citizen, and not just natural-born U.S. citizens, but immigrants. You know, I've met many people that hold America up on a pedestal to a point where it can do no wrong, and these immigrants end up loving America more than the countries that they uh, come from. And they've even told me that I won't live a better life outside of America, which is false because I've, I've been living a great life abroad. Uh, you know, you can have a great life in America, but also uh, abroad. And, you know, I, I'll admit that there's a lot of good things about America, but there's a lot of bad things that we, we tend to ignore, such as these wars that have, uh, America has initiated that have killed millions around the world. You know, Americans don't want to think about that or the economic plunder of foreign nations. And I think one reason America enjoys a comfortable lifestyle is because we've uh, stolen and extracted resources from countries on the periphery of the empire, just like the Roman Empire did. Um, so, you know, can you tell us how do you define American exceptionalism and, and why is it such an important or critical uh, ideology that serves empire? We define American exceptionalism in our book as broadly the ideology that has spanned for the last uh, two centuries plus uh, that's really rooted in the formation of the United States. And this ideology basically presumes that the United States is a force for good in the world. And it takes its cues from the uh, Western liberal uh, ideology and narrative that presumes that the West is the beacon of civilization in the United States and American exceptionalism really sees itself as the most advanced form of that ideology, a new form that has uh, been ordained by God to civilize the entire world in its image. And so the reason why this ideology is so important is not only because, as you say, the justification of wars are really based on this ideology, the justification of some of the most miserable conditions that exist on this earth are uh, justified by the idea that the United States has the right to do this and that these conditions are actually an improvement upon the world than prior to a U.S. intervention. Uh, when we look at American exceptionalism, especially its effect, effects right here in the United States, we see that many individuals and even people on the far left, even people on the most uh, radical of political persuasions, those who are anti-establishment, they ultimately end up usually reinforcing American exceptionalism in their analysis of issues that go beyond the borders of the United States. So we saw this really uh, starkly after Obama's election when he really ramped up his war, the war machine of the United States in Libya and in the nation of Syria. And few people on the left had any issue with that. Actually, there were some who were cheerleading those wars. There were some who were saying that uh, Gaddafi needed to be overthrown because he was a dictator who was uh, raping his own people. Uh, they were saying the same about Bashar al-Assad. And there was very little critical thinking as to what was actually happening there and what was the longstanding U.S. policy in the region. And if we just learned from Iraq, we, we knew that the United States really doesn't tell the truth when it comes to what it is doing abroad and, and why it does it. But yet, 
uh, even many people of the liberal and of the far left uh, decided that it was okay that because the United States had the right to do these things and because the United States was the alternative to these so-called brutal, uh, not in, inhuman, subhuman dictators, that it was the right of the United States to intervene in these countries. And we've seen the disasters that this causes. So it's a really important ideology to dissect because if we don't understand what American exceptionalism is and who are the purveyors of it, who are the creators, who are the ones who are wielding it in the interests of power? Because individuals can wield it and they can believe in it all they want. But really, it's about what is the power structure that wields it and how do they uh, implement it for their own strategic and economic and political purposes. Well, then, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us your, your perspective uh, of the, the power structure that, that does wield uh, American exceptionalism. Right. And we, we talk about it as being rooted in the profit motive and that the United States is an empire that is rooted in uh, the uh, capitalist economy, which seeks among especially the richest and the most powerful individuals who basically own this economy. They really rely upon war in order to create the conditions necessary to exploit and to control the resources of other nations. And that requires political power and that requires political control. And so the military, the U.S. military state, is the arm of the U.S. government and the U.S. political economy, which allows corporations and it allows the military industrial complex to be able to extend its tentacles wherever it desires. One of the huge contradictions of this period, though, and we saw this in Libya in 2011, is that a lot of the wars now that the U.S. wages are wars of chaos, and that they actually don't produce the recognized stability and the needed stability for the United States to actually wield total political and economic control. So the United States has ended up becoming a nation uh, that is controlled by the super rich, but a nation that cannot actually produce conditions that can better or improve the lot of humanity. Actually, all it does is create vast uh, areas of instability and regional catastrophe, which not only hurts in a lot of ways uh, the profits of a lot of major corporations, which is why we see some of the divisions right now happening in the power structure of the United States around issues of foreign policy, but we also see that the narrative of American exceptionalism that is pervaded uh, upon us by official uh, Washington, the Pentagon, and its intelligence agencies, that their justifications are becoming so glaringly uh, exposed as myth. In Libya, we were told that the, the Libyan state was a state that was a failed state and a dictatorship and ruled by an autocrat. But after the United States and NATO intervened and destroyed that country, what was left of Libya uh, was just a heap of rubble in a completely divided country, not run by any particular political faction in any stable way. And we've seen the chaos, the reports of open slave markets, but also just the inability of the Libyan people to determine their destiny and to be able to uh, build a country and an economy that can function. Even So the failed state was really brought upon Libya. And that's what we're facing right now is a system in decline, a system that's run by powerful individuals who own the means of uh, production in the state. And they are the ones who are creating havoc for 
the millions, if not billions of people around the world. And this is ultimately what the book seeks to expose. And uh, we hope that be able to reveal and expose this narrative helps us reflect on how we need to really shed it from our political function and our activities from here on forward. And let's talk a little bit more about uh, the wars, because I think this is important. And you talk about in your book about some myths, uh, false narratives, as well as uh, fake news. And, you know, I used to teach uh, history in, in, in Mexico, and I'm also a Mexican citizen. And I remember, I, I mean, and this shows just uh, this anecdote, the extent of American exceptionalism that goes beyond the U.S. So I'm, I was in Mexico, and I, was, I had a Mexican colleague, and he was teaching world history together with me. And in, in his world history class, he was teaching how the U.S. saved uh, one World War II, right? And this is a Mexican. This is not a U.S. citizen. This is a, a, a Mexican. So this shows the far reach of this, you know, ideology of American exceptionalism. And meanwhile, in my history class, I was teaching that the, the, the Russians, you know, defeated the Germans and were, were based. I mean, that's just the facts. Those are the facts that the Russians basically, you know, 20, 20, I think you've mentioned 27 million Russians died trying to defeat the Germans, they won the war. It wasn't the, the Americans. And I think this is also in, important because, you know, I don't like labels, but, you know, if you're going to label me, call me, you can call me conservative, libertarian sort of person. And I was listening recently to, to a sermon of a pastor who, you know, they think he's a great guy, but they're misguided uh, in this sense where, you know, this pastor, this was an old sermon, and he was saying that he was praying for uh, Operation Desert Storm you know, the U.S. invasion of, of, of Iraq uh, in, in the 90s, which, again, were most of the wars are based on false uh, notions, right? You know, and, and this well-meaning uh, American pastors praying for the troops. But I'm thinking, wait, wait a minute. I mean, we shouldn't even be starting this war. We shouldn't, shouldn't be there. And they have this wrong idea. Uh, 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 because of this American exceptionalism, we can't do no wrong. We're, we're going out there to help these people when, in fact, we're initiating illegal wars that kill millions of people. And it's not a, the right thing to do. So I don't know if you want to talk about some of these false narratives and, and myths, myths in history in World War II or wherever else. Yeah, let's, well, let's talk about World War II because across the political spectrum and, as you say, even globally, the United States has been able to create, and this is a huge part of American exceptionalism. It's this ability of the powers that be in the United States to create a cross class, I call it, because I believe the US is a class society. But if we just look at uh, the notion of a popular allegiance, a cross class and a popular allegiance to these myths is what really makes the ideology so effective and really has objective material consequences for the world, as you say. And so if we look at World War II, for example, and of course, uh, many even mainstream historians, you can go into the Foreign Policy Journal and find uh, pieces, well, reputable pieces about the Soviet Union's role in World War II and how it was Soviet Union who fought the bulk of the entire war, not just, um, you know, defeating Nazi Germany, but really creating the conditions where that war was going to be won for the forces of progress and against fascism, that was the Soviet Union and Russia. But if we look at the U.S. role in that war, it often is spoken about as the U.S. saved the world, and that the, the World War II is the one war, and the New York Times has said this, people like Paul Krugman have said this, that 
the U.S.'s example in World War II is the one time that the U.S. can really say that it was uh, intervening for the good of humanity or for the common good. But let's look at the reality here. The United States did not intervene in World War II for the common good. The United States waited several years. The war had been fought for over half a decade prior to U.S. entrance, and the U.S. really entered for its own political reasons. It had issues with Japanese encroachment in Southeast Asia. The U.S. was looking at Korea, and it really wanted um, that uh, region's uh, strategic, military, and economic uh, position. It really wanted control over that. But then we can also look at what the U.S. did during World War II in order to secure some of these interests, because that's what the United States was really all about at that time. It was about securing economic and geopolitical dominance. And the U.S. basically built the largest military-industrial complex ever seen in human history during this time in order to do things like, one, early in the war, finance the biggest industrialists for financing the military and political campaign of Hitler. That's just fact. We looked at some of these industrialists that can report. That's what they were doing. But then during the formal U.S. entrance into the war, the U.S. was financing the United Kingdom uh, with, uh, in the Lend-Lease model with uh, you know, millions upon millions, if not billions of dollars, what would be billions of dollars now worth of military equipment in order to wreak havoc. And we saw this in the firebombing of Dresden, for example, where the United States and the UK collaborated to murder 30,000 people in under a day in Dresden, which historians now across a mainstream political persuasion see as completely unnecessary to the war effort. And why did they do that? Well, the United States and the UK saw the Red Army marching that way and said, we're going to show the Soviet Union, we're going to show Russia what we can do because we're looking ahead. We're looking ahead at the broader Cold War that was about to be sparked after World War II. And the United States really had an interest in showing its political and economic superiority to the Soviet Union. That was really what the uh, dropping of the atomic bombs was all about. Uh, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan during a time where Japan was actually having backdoor negotiations to surrender. But the United States dropped two atomic bombs, said this was necessary for Japan to surrender, when in fact the, uh, uh, the history shows, the real history shows, that the United States was really interested and showing the Soviet Union that it had nuclear capabilities, which it could utilize very close to uh, the Russian regional um, strategic um, area. So this is what we talked about in the book, is that the reality of American exceptionalism, the reality of these myths that's so pervasive, um, are not only so detached from the actual history and political record of the United States, but also their effect is to create an allegiance to these crimes, that not only do we not see the crimes, but we uh, are convinced that they aren't crimes at all. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that, that gets me, is are these double standards? Uh, you know, uh, you, you have, I think, 20 or 21 uh, essays, or chapters uh, in the book, and you talk about different topics, you talk about human rights, uh, how human rights are, are weaponized and all, all these double standards like we see now with uh, Iran where it's the U.S. who pulls out of, of the deal and then says Iran's the bad guy or with Russia where it's the U.S. who's 
pulling out all of the, of all of the nuclear arms control treaties and then saying you know it's it's russia's fault russia's violating them and it, i mean i'm just looking around it's like doesn't anyone like see this is absolutely uh absurd and th- that the us in these instances is operating undiplomatically and and, and unfairly uh, i mean and that's what really gets me and so uh i don't know if you want to comment on anything there these these double standards how human rights are being uh weaponized humanitarianism or humanitarian uh intervention as you mentioned in in, in libya as we see or or venezuela I, I i interviewed one of my professors who happened to be the u.n special reporter alfred desayas who went to uh, venezuela and he talks about how the human rights are, are being uh weaponized and it's the u.s who's destroying the economy uh in, in venezuela i mean sure okay sure if you ask me I, you know, I might say maybe Venezuela didn't have the best system, but you know, I mean, the U.S. is coming in and doing great damage is causing the loss of lives uh, in Venezuela. And sometimes people, because of their ideologies, can't, they don't want to see some of these, these, these bad things. So, I mean, what can you say there? Yeah, very good points. And, you know, what's striking about your comments, too, is, um, we can disagree with how Venezuela or any other uh, country organizes itself to economically and politically meet the population's needs. We can always disagree on that. What the United States does is not only disagree on that and oftentimes lie about the systems of other countries, but it also takes extremely hypocritical actions in response to them. So when we think about how the United States treats uh, the world uh, as its backyard, uh, we can see that not only does the United States create conditions where sanctions in Venezuela have killed 40,000 people from 2015 to 2017 alone, uh, we don't even know what the numbers will be now that the sanctions have tightened, uh, been tightened, they will likely rise. But we also see that the, uh, the fact that the United States calls people like Nicolas Maduro a dictator and an autocrat but then goes and gives hundreds of billions of dollars worth of military equipment over several years to Saudi Arabia, which is an actual uh, monarchy, an actual uh, theocratic regime, an autocracy that is based on a wholly right-wing interpretation of a religion, which half of the world, uh, nearly half of the world, practices and sees as a stain upon humanity when we look at what Saudi Arabia does to journalists, what it does to women, it's horrific human rights record. It's known internationally as the number one sponsor of terrorism, the uh, so-called force in the world that the United States says it's waging a war against. We see the hypocrisy everywhere. But the United States, because it is never held accountable, because it has used its economic and uh, military supremacy, now more military supremacy than economic in this stage of its life, um, we see that the United States... Uh, basically protects its hypocrisy under uh, the barrel of a gun. And uh, that is really the critical issue that we have to deal with. Because at the end of the day, nations like Venezuela, Syria, um, any nation that is being targeted, Iran, for example, uh, can't really determine their own destiny under the barrel of the gun of the United States. And so if we really do truly care about these so-called values that the U.S. says it cares about, liberty, freedom, democracy, then we should hold the United States accountable, but we should also ensure that the United States is not allowed to be hypocritical about 
its uh, so-called motives abroad. And that really means reigning in this war machine, which is uh, creating so much catastrophe and devastation and not allowing people around the world, uh, even places like China, where economic growth is so high and there's so many advancements, uh, China can't even um, operate freely in this world economy, in this world system, because the United States is so hell-bent on military encirclement and on ensuring that countries that China really does, will need uh, to negotiate and work with to advance uh, are totally being held in a state of backwardness because the United States has no interest in any of that. Its interests mainly are in ensuring that it remains the number one superpower and it will lie its way and talk about these myths as if they're fact um, until, you know, there is a force that can challenge it. And I think that we're seeing that now, that these myths, and one of the reasons we wrote this book was not to just convince Americans and convince people here that they need to unlearn some of these things, but it's also to understand that we're in a moment where American exceptionalism is under great challenge, and we need to be part of that challenge. We need to say that the United States should not be the number one superpower in the world, given what it's done to humanity, that we need to build mutual uh, relationships of mutual support and cooperation and solidarity with people around the world in order to really change these conditions, because we shouldn't want uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of migrants being displaced from their countries. We shouldn't want, want endless wars, we, and we shouldn't want the poverty and the devastation that all of this creates. Or a surveillance <clears throat> police state. Um, you mentioned the empire and China. Um, you know, Eurasia is is rising. Mackinder's uh, heartland. I actually had the privilege to visit the geographic center of of Eurasia recently. Um, and so, what what are your thoughts going forward? I mean, historically, if we read history, we see empires rise, empires fall. Uh, sometimes they often they go to war with the rising empire. So, I mean. And we've seen, you mentioned Russia, you know, NATO is surrounding Russia. I mean, they're trying to cut through the heartland to divide Russia and China. I'm in Kazakhstan uh, right now, and we had the transition uh, in power, and there's been some protests and uh, unrest recently. I haven't had time mm -hmm. to write an article about this, but I wrote uh, my thesis, a graduate thesis on color revolutions. And when you talk to often many, many liberals who believe in except, this American exceptionalism, some rep, uh, Western reporters that I've met in, in Kazakhstan, you know, when you talk about color revolution, they say, oh, that's a Russian conspiracy theory. But it's like, wait, mm. wait a minute, I, there's, there's facts. I can, I can show you this. And I was shocked to discover that this movement uh, of unrest in Kazakhstan recently, um, one of the leaders was trained by the National Endowment for Democracy, which was, you know, basically it's an NGO set up by the CIA to overthrow foreign governments. So, um, and so it looks like, you know, the U.S. is in, in there between Russia and China and Kazakhstan stirring up unrest and Hong Kong, we see what's happening now, uh, Venezuela, Iran. And so it seems like the empire is going mad. Um, and so what are your thoughts in the future? Do you think we're going to see, you know, they're talking about using low yield nuclear weapons, tactical mini nukes. I mean, this is kind of crazy, but I mean, do you see war uh, or do you see, you know, a peaceful transition to the, the, the East uh, rising? What are your thoughts there? A lot of it will depend on what people in the United States 
uh, will do and what people in the Western world will do, because uh, I think that China and Russia truly do want a peaceful transition. I think uh, the leadership in both of those countries understand that they are honestly the future of the world um, system at this time, the world economic and political system at this time. Uh, you know, China's abundant economic growth and Russia's military strength and its uh, recovery from the disastrous Yeltsin period that the U.S. backed so heavily. Um, its recovery has given China deep economic and military and strategic partnership, which really is carrying the world towards the East. We see this with the One Belt, um, One Road Initiative, and just the hundreds of billions of dollars worth of economic activity that China and Russia plan to do in the near future. So we know that they are looking for a peaceful transition, that uh, they are offering a model that is different from the unipolar superpower model uh, based in American exceptionalism that the United States wields currently. However, the United States doesn't want that. We see all of its foreign policy and domestic policy um, prerogatives are all based upon ensuring that no alternative to its system is allowed to emerge. That the United States talks about democracy all the time, but it won't allow its own people to demand things like Medicare for all and actually have them seen through, um, or to demand things like a massive reduction in the prison population and have those things seen through. We see that uh, the United States' power, powerful elite do not want that, and that all of their foreign policy measures right now, whether it's uh, through saber-rattling with Venezuela, ratcheting up sanctions with Cuba, um, the same against Iran, and uh, you know the continued military occupation of Syria, all of this shows that the United States is really pointing its guns, it's pointing all of its uh, energies and military um, military capacities toward Russia and China. That is what the Trump administration announced in its national security um, policy document saying that Russia and China are the strategic enemies of the United States. They are the main competitors. We're not fighting terrorism anymore. We're fighting the progress that Russia and China is laying out because Russia and China are going to replace economically and militarily U.S. Uh, one superpower supremacy. And so how I see things happening is that if the people of the United States and the Western world are able to rise up and say no to the potential for nuclear war. And there could be a possibility that the United States will be restrained and its partners will be restrained. But we also know that the United States just doesn't control every, even its own allies anymore, um, if it ever really did. So we know that Israel and Saudi Arabia and some of these players do have a huge sway on what the United States does. And so it's going to be a very complicated process but unfortunately, I do see a high potential of a dangerous nuclear confrontation right around the corner. And so I hope that this book can really outline uh, what people really need to know about how the United States talks about itself in order to shed uh, that belief amongst ourselves so we can demand from our own government that we do not want such a nuclear catastrophe to take place because we do care about humanity and we do care about um, development that is about progress and it is about uh, meeting the needs that we have that are so pressing here and around the world. And uh, I think that there are more people, we have, we have history on our side and we have the people on our side, but they do have control over the um, 
you know, the commanding heights of the economy and the state. And so unless that changes in some way, unless that is challenged, yes, we are in for a, a really difficult situation to come. Um, and I think the Trump era, this era where we see all these divisions happening and Trump himself, even though he's a very, um, you know, ranchivist and arch racist type individual, we see even when he does something that we should all support, talking to the DPRK, wanting uh, relations with Russia that are not based on um, ever increasing aggression, he is attacked by the ruling elite in this country. So we have to, and in the Western world generally, so we have to really see these developments for what they are as a product of a very dangerous path that the United States is walking toward. And hopefully, um, as more people begin to unlearn that with the help of my book and the help of your work, that we can prepare ourselves to unite around uh, this, this very dangerous moment so we can have peace, real peace on this planet. Is there any other uh, key point that, that you want to get across from your book? Because I, I, there's a lot of topics there. Anything else that uh, I haven't asked? Sure. I'll just say that, you know, we, we take a position that American exceptionalism and American innocence, too, because we talk a lot about American innocence, which is the idea that the United States, um, even when it is criticized correctly, for the crimes that it commits, that those crimes are justified based upon its intentions and its um, and its ultimate uh, goals. We're, we're pure and rights, and we're all about making the world a better place. That this ideology is also dangerous, and it's very related to the notion of American exceptionalism. So there's that, and there's also the point that we we take a position that American exceptionalism is a uh, ideology based in white superiority and that if we look at the links between uh, the way that the United States behaves around the world and creates these images of inhumanity and subhuman um, depictions of how of who people are around the world, whether it's Syrian people or the Iranian people, whether it's you know, from Vietnam, part Vietnamese and the Vietnamese people, you know, I still hold a lot of the things that I heard growing up in this country dear because it was indicative of the notion that U.S. superiority is really based on the notion that, uh, you know, whites are superior, Westerners are superior to everyone else, and that uh, those who are not Westerners or white Americans were ultimately dispen um, dispensable. They were ultimately disposable and could be uh, destroyed at any moment for whatever the United States uh, wanted to accomplish. So, in effect, we're looking at not only an ideology that's a lie, but one that is, has always been based upon mass extinction. And I think that logic has taken us to this very dangerous moment where now Russians and, uh, and, and people in China, the, China, the People's Republic, are seen as these boogeymen that are uh, not worth learning or listening to, understanding. And it's that idea of superiority, that uh, very inculcated and deeply embedded superiority that a lot of Americans feel is what is going to do a lot of harm and has done a lot of harm over the course of history. Yeah, I mean, just to comment on, on the white supremacists, I was reading your book. I mean, again, from my perspective, I just kind of take it down to human nature. Uh, or if you go back into history, um, you know, you might see other empires that, you know, the Mongol empires or the, the Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire, 
where there were groups or an empire of power that that wasn't white that subjugated others and you know perhaps you know from your perspective in the current age that we live in there are there's a higher number of whites that are in empire in power um so you know i might i might differ with you there a little bit but you know i i would also add that that this is a good example of us now talking we have a different perspective uh and we agree on some things and i would also call out my other our other fellow americans you know i, I get attacked a lot from people from my own side when I, when I, you know, we should have a self-examination more, look at things more and more critically and not just blindly attack people uh, and have a healthy factual examination uh, of this exceptionalism that is doing a lot of damage uh, around the world and not just blindly following uh, our leaders or even some of the people that we um, elected. You know, you mentioned Obama. There are people that were voted for Obama <laughs> and there were dissolution. There's people I know that uh, voted for Trump. And, and instead of looking at some of the bad things that he does, like he, he can do no wrong. And it's just like, come on, let's, let's be fair here. So any final comment from you? Sure. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. And I, I believe that, you know, the more that we're able to have these discussions about history and ultimately about the very structure, the social structure, the political and economic structure that undergirds all of the myth-making that the United States is involved in and American exceptionalism and American innocence and um, there's a whole host more, that we can really begin to create a change of political consciousness, which is so necessary in the United States especially. I mean, the United States is probably the most warped country when it comes to just political consciousness and understanding to be able to make informed decisions politically based upon an examination of the material reality that we live in. The United States is way far behind the Western world and not so far behind it, but uh, much of the world is looking at the United States and looking at the people of the United States and waiting and wondering, when is that upheaval? When is that change? When is that uh, spark going to happen where we can not only build spaces to have this in this country, because honestly, universities in this country, um, you know, workplaces, schools, they are hostile, right? We have this huge surveillance state, this police state in the United States, which is, you know, one of the strongest and most uh, draconian that exists in the world. And there isn't a lot of room. So independent journalists, independent activists, people who are saying these things, who want to get this message out, have a really hard time doing that. So, you know, for your viewers and, you know, anyone else who may um, come across this, it's really important that we support each other and that we begin to build these relationships. And, you know, we can have these internal discussions, we can have these discussions of disagreement, and, um, but we, you know, we should be looking towards ways to build unity um, and a real global unity that can, um, that can really begin to build a vision for what, what's to come, a different vision from what the United States' uh, official Washington and military industrial complex sees for the world and, you know, what the Western, you know, imperial apparatus sees for the world and, and being the formulate one that is more akin to what the vast majority of humanity wants, which is really peace and justice. All right. And where can people best follow you in your work? Right. So you can find me at blackagendareport.com. Uh, I write a weekly column there under the name Danny Haifong. You can also find me on the American Herald Tribune. I've written a plenty for that 
uh, source and it's been very generous and kind and it's a very good independent source as well. And uh, you can find my book, uh, Skyhorse Publishing website. You can also find me on Twitter at Spirit of Ho, one word, Spirit of H-O. And you can also find me on Facebook at Danny Haifong. So, you know, please uh, reach out to me and, um, you know, let's, let's build. Yeah, I would definitely check out the book. Uh, I just finished uh, reading it, so people can go check that out. If you can't get the physical copy, you can purchase the, the electronic version. Uh, and as well, people can find, you, you give a lot of interviews, so if they just put your name into YouTube, um, they'll find that. And again, thanks for, for your time and for the interview. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.